Welcome to Good News, Bad News, the Libertarian Christian Roundtable, where every other week we challenge the status quo and give you the libertarian Christian analysis of what's happening in your world. Welcome back to another episode of Good News, Bad News, the Christian Libertarian Roundtable presented by the Libertarian Christian Institute. Today with me, I'm Dr. Norman Horn. I am here with Kerry Baldwin and Aaron Sipovedeque. I can't even say the name half the time, but he's here with us today again. And uh, so we're just a, a, a three-person team tonight. Uh, we're missing Doug uh, tonight since he is traveling, but we are happy to bring uh, some, some interesting topics uh, to bear for you. And we hope that if you are interested in, in learning more about this, we'll have some show notes with some links that you'll be able to explore more from, as well as uh, in, our, uh, in, in the blog post that we'll have on libertarianchristians.com. And make sure, of course, to go there, subscribe to our email list, subscribe to our YouTube feed here, like the video, spread it around, and help us out in spreading the good word about Christian libertarian ideas. Uh, so today we're just going to talk about three quick topics, and hopefully you'll uh, learn something from each one of these. Uh, we have some kind of weird stuff today, some, uh, but are also all, of, in Arid's words, pretty meaty. So uh, first up, we want to talk about something that has been uh, a very strange topic in economic news recently, uh, the so-called trillion-dollar coin. It appears that this is something that the Treasury can do to somehow get uh, get us out of debt, or is it to just inflate the money? I don't know exactly. Aaron, you got the lowdown on this one. Please explain to me, how the heck does a trillion-dollar coin work? Okay, so... This is how it goes. I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. We'll try. No, no, because, I mean, it's it's not compl- it's not really complex. It's just kind of ridiculous. So, like, you really, in order to explain it, I have to hold up my lap. So, it's kind of like I have to say it seriously. So, explain, say, it. So explain it to me like I'm five, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, back in the days, 1800s, when we were not alive, in that moment, <laughs> right? Grandma oh. was not alive either. Okay. So don't even blame grandma for this. Okay. Wow. Back in the days, there was, they passed a law where the, the treasury department of the federal government has the authority to create some type collectible coins that the value of the coin, the physical value, if you wish, uh, and a physical value being like the value of the actual metal inside of it? the actual yeah the, the metal okay. the metal the metal value of of the coin and what you put on top of it and 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 the nominal value the dollar value so the print the, value then the print value is they're going to be very set that they're going to be very uh different and there was a little bit of a benefit there because the treasury would actually profit a little bit out of it but it was always restricted to uh, collectors, just as simple as that. Let's say they would create a, a coin for that the metal the metal value of it was let's say two dollars, and they would put ten dollars on top of it. They would sell it to a collector. A collector would actually buy it for say ten dollars, sometimes even less than ten dollars. But the point is, and collectors were happy with that because for them it's not really the nominal value because they're not going to use it as now. This is this is key. They were not going to use it as money. They were not going to be buying stuff with it. It's just a collectible. That's it. There's there's nothing. That's why even they even pay, um, they pay more so on and so forth. So it might pay like a, essentially a numismatic premium on it. Though. There you go. That that, that okay. that's the point that it has some type of. Uh, it is really the per, the 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 spirit of the or or the 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 idea of the law was some type of uh, of of collectible uh, function, not. A revenue fund. It, it since now, and this is where it gets tricky. If you notice, it does come has 
some type of revenue function for the treasury, but because they're quite literally profiting out of a the printing uh, of the coin, a, the okay. printing of the coin that is worth less than what it says on uh than 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 the than the print value, but it was never a big deal. It never really affected the money supply per se. It it, it was it was very minimal. Now, if you expand it to modern times, that quite literally means that if we continue to do that, uh, we don't even know if the treasury still does something like that, some, kind, some type of a, a, a function of continuing to doing that because right now it really doesn't matter because the Fed is the one that creates what you and I would call the base money supply, the more basic money that is created. Okay, now they're saying someone kind of figured out why can't we just use that law from the 1800s when not even grandma was alive and instead of printing... $10 on a $2 coin, why don't we print a trillion dollars in a titanium, if I'm correct, that, that's the metal that we're going to use. I think I heard it was platinum, but still. Yeah, there you go, platinum, something that yeah. the exact, uh, so I'm like not definitely. even sure which one. It's so ridiculous that it's hard to even keep up with, you know, the, all the different, and they even give you, give you, this is how ridiculous it got. We could, someone actually thought, we could actually print $10 trillion in one, in one coin, but let's just create let's just make it one you, you see why it's difficult to explain it because you really want to laugh because it's just so silly right but why don't we just make 10 trillion 10 coins of one trillion and that will be better why would it I, mean, I don't know what why don't we that? just what's our what's our debt why don't we just print a whatever our debt is coin and pay it off oh, there you go that that's think about it if they're talking about 10 trillion they're already talking about almost half of the national debt so right. it, it 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 is somewhat believe it or not it's somewhat related so as the point is, the people that are coming up with this idea uh, will be what you and I will call some type of MM, uh, MM tiers uh, thinkers yeah. <laughs> to say, that, look, the government creates the money. It's just for them, it's just silly that the, that the treasury has any limits on how much you can spend on how much money should uh, it should create. Uh, and so, for example, you and I discuss about how the Fed and the federal government and the, the Fed and the treasury interact yeah. with each other so that the treasury can do its spending. And the Fed can create money so that banks can create what we will call uh, inside money, which will be banking money, what you and I use as debit card. Okay. But for them, it's like, well, okay, if the government creates money. Why don't we just talk about like, talk about it if it was just one, one government so they can create it? Because we have a law and a tradition of having a debt limit on the treasury. We don't have limits on the Fed. Uh, see, I think this is where the, the kind of the, the confusion sort of sets in is that it feels, I'm sure for many people that... Well, what well, was well, is Isn't this just the the isn't this just the Fed doing something that it would have normally been doing just by adding a zero at the end of their, you know, their ledger line or whatever. But it's not. It's actually something that the Treasury has a power to do that kind of circumvents the money creation ability of the Fed. But then it wasn't really intended for this purpose in the first place. And now that they're kind of looking at it to try and just print money out of thin air, it suddenly is risen in national consciousness in a certain manner. Is that, so, is that so kind of, is this going to add to the inflation problem? Oh, there you go. Okay. There you go. The inflation we're talking about. Yeah. I thought you were going to say to the national debt because that's the tricky part. It does not add to the national debt. And I was trying to make, make the case that it was, but much, most people are saying, no, no, no. This is some type of money creation. And then we're, we're having a debate whether it adds or not to the national debt. No, it, it looks like it won't. I, I think it does, but it's super technical, so don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's just so silly. Like, it's just because for me on Austrian liquidity theory, 
that's that's it. That's a commitment of the treasury that they're not going to waste it away, creating a bunch of inflation. Um, so it's, it's you know, wonderful. They're, they're supposed to like the whole point is I'm creating money, but I'm not going to waste it away. That that's I mean, think about it. What, what does the Fed do? We're creating new money and we're probably not going to write it, put it on, on hand. But we all understand like we're going to create this money and we're not going to let it devalue more than two percent or so. That that's what most most ba- most uh, most central banks either even if they don't have it strict it is kind of well known how much they should actually aim what what inflation rate yeah. they should aim so there's <laughs> yeah. a type of there's a type of commitment but the other ones are saying no that's just directly money it really doesn't affect the national debt so on and so forth but long story short the point is that gives the treasury department and therefore congress to cover absolutely every conceivable program that uh, that Congress can come up with it. Every conceivable program would just have a titanium. <laughs> just mint a coin, coin to pay for the, yeah. <laughs> the budget. That, that's literally that's what ridiculous. it is. It's just, yeah. it just, just, just mint it and that's it. I mean, you just put it in there and there's a trillion dollars and that's it. There's, there's okay. nothing to it. So, because the point is that treasury right now cannot create what you and I would call money, but this would allow the treasury, not the Fed. And that's the big fight inside of the government. That who uh, if should if it should be the Fed the only one that creates something what we, you and I will call money now this would allow the Treasury to also create money and that's the inside fight from outside it looks ridiculous but there's a big political fight inside is who which agency or or uh, or portion of the government should be the one in charge of creating money I think I should be allowed to create money oh. we all should <laughs> we all should. <laughs> Well, so I'm going to take a little bit of moderator's prerogative for just a second here, too. And and so, you know, we brought up this, you know, the, the concept of how is this affecting inflation? And I do think it's interesting to note that, you know, suddenly over the last week and a half, we have seen a recent upsurge in news and, uh, and reviews of in, inflationary uh, data suggesting mm-hmm. that the so-called uh, you know, temporary inflation that we were experiencing recently is shockingly going to be a little bit more, quote, sticky. Oh, great. And, yeah. And, oh, well, like, who could have who could have predicted that? Couldn't have predicted that. <laughs> Not at all. But now, wh- while it might be true that there is some level of, uh, of, of uh, the increased pricing that is, in fact, due more to uh, surge... Uh, uh, increased demand and lowered supply by virtue of supply chain disruption and whatnot. I think it's no surprise at all that the real inflation, which is always due to monetary supply and not merely part of a price changes due to supply and demand, uh, is is indeed going to be sticky, because that's what happens. So I, uh, when when you are creating money out of thin air, like is being done. Uh, it's interesting to note that I think to kind of see that, I mean, clearly they have some, they have to have some knowledge that that's what they're doing because they, you know, they're at least. Oh, no, they don't. Are you, you don't think they have at least some measure of knowledge? Like I, no, no, they, 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 it's, um, it will be anti-knowledge if you want to see it that way. They Ooh. say, no, it's not the, the money supply cannot, the mo- cannot push up prices. Yeah. Well, that's I heard them say that. How they, exactly. know. So well, when do we when do we get to wake up from this nightmare? <laughs> I mean, the, 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 when Bitcoin the way takes that, over. That the way that I would like <laughs> to summarize it, and this is something that completely shocked me, was a lot of the people that will be considered MMT proponents, 
they were saying, no, 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 look, the government can continue to spend on whatever seems necessary. And we were like, hey, wait a minute, without a limit or what? No, 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 the limit is inflation. Because they were saying, if you create a lot of money and prices don't rise, that means that there's a lot of, a, a lot of uh, uh, extra capacity in the economy. So just keep on printing until prices are around 2%. And that's it. That, that is our constraint, right? That kind of makes sense. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that kind of makes it. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, but doesn't, but doesn't money. that kind of belie, though, that they understand what they're doing? Wait, 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 wait. No, it's, it just, it's just getting interesting. Oh, wait, no. Wait. Talk <laughs> it. It's just getting interesting because it just happened two days ago or something. This so that week was on, on Silly Things Explained by Aaron. The, 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 I know. I know that would look. Should be okay. an SNL skit. Yeah. <laughs> this is exa- so it's funnier it's, than the money their supply normal. Does not, the, the money supply does not create create money, be, create uh, prices to write, consumer prices to write. Because first, it has to be spent. If it doesn't get spent, it's, gonna, it's not going to do anything. And if there's an increased supply, then it's not going to let the prices rise. Because with the extra money there's, and extra spending, there's going to be extra goods. And you know, kind of like that, the idea. Oh, so as long so, as okay. it matches, that's the, that's the constraint. The constraint is inflation. If you have inflation, then that means that the supply is not catching up. Correct? I mean, that sounds kind of reasonable. At least... They're, they're open as you said yeah, it, if the price level if yes yeah, so if there's I, I understand so yeah if, if there's okay. an increase in capacity then prices will not rise which, sure. okay. which means but it also means that, that consumption has to go up which means that now that we hit, we're under inflation guess what as far as i understand we hit the constraint correct we'd have to Be- yeah i mean by, by that logic yes by that logic okay therefore why are we thinking of trillion dollar coins <laughs> it's all in the middle of inf- in the middle of inflation? We're like, yeah. wait, wait, we've, we we already hit the constraint. We have to be done. We have to pull back. We have to reduce dollar supply and the national debt supply that I was trying to explain to some people that it that the tr- that national debt itself sometimes is used well many times is used as money itself. So even that one pushes up prices. So yeah. we have to keep track of that. It's not just what you and I call dollars, but even the national debt. Since it's used for payments, it pushes up prices many times. Now, okay, we're done. We have to uh, reduce the national debt and the amount of dollars in circulation because prices are going up. Guess what? We don't have to. Oh, it's <laughs> so if we just stop, it'll go down again. <laughs> no, no, no. Because now this is very clever. Because now all we have to do is to spend money, but strategically on things that increase productivity. And that's it. Well, and we oh. have a productivity problem right now, too. It's there any constraint in reality? <sighs> oh, my no. gosh. All it, sound, all it sounds to me like is, is they're making up the rules as they pretend that the rules don't. If you accept exist. that every time it goes up like crazy, let's say in Argentina, 50% inflation, right? or Venezuela is kind of crazy, but Venezuela, uh, Argentina, 50% a year. They're saying, no, no, no. It's not that you're spending too much or that there's too much money in circulation relative to the supply. It's that you're not spending it strategically on things that increase, increase productivity. So continue to spend. Can you please just be careful on what you spend? That's it. There's no constraint. This sounds, but, uh, isn't, but that's like business cycle theory 101 here. I mean, it, exactly. it, overinvestment, malinvestment, boom, bust, boom. And just so- continue to spend. Make sure someday you spend on something that will increase productivity. Hopefully. Okay, so so we have but, to increase productivity, but the only thing that increases productivity is the free market, and they are clamping down on 
the freaking market. Okay, true. Right, right, right. But here's the but the problem, and I think this is probably where where Aaron would go next, is that how do you how do you determine whether spending on something is in fact increasing productivity? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. Okay. Well, no. The, the answer is the answer is that's where price emergence has to come in. And if you have right. a pr- and if prices are getting uh, discombobulated by the by the you know mismatch of 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 uh, of money money creation uh, and value creation from the top, then there's no rational way to actually get to what are we what are we investing in that's actually going to be increasing productivity. So it's it's a central you know isn't this is this not the knowledge problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it oh, is, uh, think about it. If they spend more on education, great. Uh, that means we're going to have let's more people come uh, graduating out of the communities. Great. There's more people that can read poetry, but that doesn't. I mean, I'm not against. I mean, I'm not against people reading poetry, but right. the point is that the investment was supposed to match increased productivity, so we can have more consumer goods, so that the price of consumer goods will go down. But then what we have, or, or it doesn't have to be that. Imagine that we have a bunch of aerospace engineers, right? I mean, so, the the engineers. Lo- so the logic but that works. doesn't, that doesn't affect, but that doesn't affect consumer goods that will affect prices in the aerospace 100%. industry, right? But like, this is, it, this is, this is where it's like, the, it's the pretense of knowledge. It's like, well, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which okay, there, I can see your logic. Yes. If we just spend on things that will increase capacity, then we'll be, then we'll get ourselves out of the scenario. But how do you do that? That's right. like, that's a pretense of knowledge and, and Hayek just, you know, completely dissolved what should have been that problem. <laughs> it, it, it was something like, um, very uh, large and and thick on ideas and very thin on details. You know what I mean? As it always is. <laughs> it's just like these great ideas and amazing. So can you please tell me how we're going to choose this? And it's like, well, we figured out and, and we have to be str- <laughs> This is the one that I love. It yeah, we have when to they want to close it, it's, it's like, hey, I, that, that word just gets you out of all troubles. <laughs> Whenever yeah, you just, don't know what to say. We just we need more strategery. Strategery. <laughs> be, be creative. Uh, be, be strategic. Creative. Those to get you out of all trouble. This is this is the proverbial car salesman. Yeah. uh, Speaking well, speaking of being creative and strategic, uh, (laughs) that leads perfectly into our next segment. No, it not exactly, but it it does on some level. (laughs) But uh, but moving on from the topic of of monetary policy into foreign policy, uh, a recent event has taken place, which was somewhat uh, I. Monumental to me because it was always something I would have I was would have said. Just this is the only the only way I will ever see this debate happen is in my dreams, <laughs> uh, and that is that our good friend uh, Mr. Scott Horton recently debated at the Soho Forum, uh, Mr. Bill Crystal. No, not Billy Crystal, the actor, but Bill Crystal, the Bill Crystal, the neocon warhawk. Yeah. Uh, Bill Crystal is, of course, known to be as the he was the chief of staff for Dan Quayle uh, back in the day. He uh, was also the one of the co-founders of the Weekly Standard, the magazine, and that's of course historically been a massive, uh, you know, interventionist rag. And this debate at the Soho Forum uh, was essentially on the resolution of that it, that interventionism is a positive good for uh for america here at home and and ultimately kind of more broadly speaking for the world at large 
Uh, you can view this now. This debate happened a few weeks ago, and now it is available to be seen publicly uh, in the recorded form on YouTube. So if you just uh, go to YouTube or Google, you know, Horton versus Crystal uh, Soho Forum, uh, you can easily watch this debate. And it's a pretty fascinating, uh, it's a pretty fascinating watch. I would, I, I've watched through the whole thing. It took me a little while. It's about an hour and a half long. So it, it does take a little bit of commitment. Um, but it's quite interesting to see the, the kind of contrasting presentation. Of course, the debate is always, this is an Oxford style debate. And in an Oxford style debate, it's always going to have that kind of polarizing effect. Um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Scott Horton. Uh, you know, I haven't said this already, but we've talked about Bill. But Scott is, of course, uh, been the longtime host of the Anti-War podcast and the, uh, I believe the publications editor of Antiwar.com for some time. And, uh, and, of, and just a, a tremendously uh, educated person in, the, in history and in policy. Uh, one of the guys who I would first go to uh, if I had a question about, you know, some question about intervention in the Middle East in the last 60 or 70 years. He knows it all. And he's got a really good recollection and recall of just anything in that in that realm. It's really impressive. And so to hear him go up against Crystal is pretty significant. It is not never something I would have expected to see. Uh, overall, the debate's really interesting. I'd say the, the kind of my basic analysis is that Scott really took him to task uh, on a lot of different points, almost to the point where I was like, oh, man, Scott, you know, like, this is an Oxford debate, man. Like, get, be careful. Like, like <laughs> you have to, yeah, don't go. Don't get to ad hominem yet. No, 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 no. Don't get there. Mm -hmm. uh, but overall, I mean, and, and overall, though, really what he's doing is he's indicting the entirety of the neocon ideology, uh, right. which is, is which is very much a kind of bait and switch uh, kind of uh, play that they that the, the neocons like to to use where it's well we love liberty we love bringing we love freedom and so we're willing to bomb the living crap out of people in order to bring it to them and but the the arguments from crystal seem to be ring pretty hollow especially now you know that we're 20 years in especially post afghanistan this afghanistan pullout and realizing that like there was no chance it was going to go well yeah. And I mean, you, we can certainly criticize the way at which it was uh, it was executed in the short term and that it was done very poorly and that, you know, it left a lot of people high and dry and all that. But like on the level of at least the, that 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 the Taliban was going to come back and, you know, with the resurgence there on their own, like that was going to happen no matter what, guys. And so what anyway, the the interesting thing to me is that like at this point, so much of the neocon argument has been in a sense practically debunked uh, that it's hard to maintain i think that level of argument and so the level of detail that crystal brings to bear even in support of his own arguments is fairly small yeah. uh it's kind of a it's kind of a uh well you know you can't play counterfactual history and you know if you'd like i mean if you if you sort of like the way things are now in that there's a you know a, a general liberal order and by that we mean the, the he, he would try he's trying to use that in the good sense of the word liberal here um across the across the world and well then you have to kind of you know you have to kind of credit american militarism for that on some level and it's like do i really like is that is that a causal thing or is it incidental 
we, we and can, that's we, we can listen to those arguments still be alive which is kind of sad but much less than before when, when when we were young let's say early 2000s this was daily oh yeah, yeah this was this was daily. totally thrown in our faces on a you know well I mean, and i think it's interesting because i can remember i can still remember watching bill crystal on fox news and i think at that time um you know, cable news television was, was still fairly new. Um, and it was, you know, like Aaron said, it was interface every day, but they did this, they did this weird thing where they were trying to sort of predict the future and saying, you know, the, the, our problems X, Y, and Z are going to be solved by us doing a, B and C. And, um, crystal was, was, on his game, at least in so far as being a persuasive talking head. Um, but when I listened to him, um, and I admit I, I have not watched the entire debate. I watched Bill Crystal's part and that was about it. <laughs> um, but when I watched Bill Crystal, uh, present his side this time, it was like, holy crap, like what, what happened to this charismatic figure that seemed to seem to have it all together? I mean, obviously I don't think that interventionism is, is a good thing or anything like that, but he was able to deliver it, you know, 20 years ago and in a way that was persuasive and to listen to him now, just like you said, it rings hollow. Um, he doesn't have he doesn't have any support in, in his favor. I don't understand how he could even. If I'm correct, the, what really happened is that the woman, you guys can actually see it. And we're, we're probably part of that movement is the newer generations, which will be what today, the ones that we came to, how does it, uh, we form our political views in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were not neocons. That's it. Yeah. But those guys just got old. That's it. And and nobody nobody followed. And the, and well, I guess but, they didn't ha, but, care for it because they already had their but two how much, favorite words. Their two favorite. They had them uh, fully. Like the military, um, the military industrial complex had its two words where they had all everything that they ever wanted. So they, I felt, I feel like they never. They felt that they didn't, they didn't have to worry uh, about growing as an intellectual movement anymore. I think. But isn't isn't like the the Biden administration using many of the same tactics that the Bush administration did for trying to rationalize um, taking away liberty in the name of our security? I, I feel like I feel like the Biden administration is rehashing the same tactics, um, but you know, with a with a completely new and relevant uh, threat. Enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and so in some in some way in, in some way we haven't gotten away from bill crystal's neoconservative nonsense it's just his his little pet issue is now old and tired and obviously worn out well well if you review kind of the way in which he's presenting his argument uh the way i'd sort of analyze it is that he was using a lot of mitigating language in order to try and 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 stave off the potential for certain types of rebuttals um, from affecting the type of point that he wanted to make. And we do this, we do this like in various ways, logically speaking, if, you know, he might, he might, uh, for instance, multiple times he went to the, to use the language like, you know, you could, you could make an argument 
that this was uh, not done. This was not done in a in an ideal fashion, or this was not uh, this was not optimally executed. So what is he what is he doing there? Well, he's trying to minimize the potential for someone who to to to, uh, to try and present some type of rebuttal to his argument by saying, "Well, I've kind of already answered that." And we're going to, and, and, and I'm saying, and I'm kind of pushing that aside. I'm going to say, push that aside, push that aside in order to, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact, exact uh, logical term that you're supposed to use for this sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe Carrie can, remi- can remind me here from her logic courses. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, but there's, there's a, you know, it's, it's a minimization of, of potential answers and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so the hedging, if you will. Yeah. Uh, of, of on certain points to try and 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 uh, maximize the value he's going to try and get out of his own particular point. The interesting way in which that uh, the way I felt like that um, that uh, that Scott really like took him to task on was that when he when he really doubled down on minimizing the potential opposition, uh, Scott had some in a couple of ways, and one way in particular, I felt really turned the tables on him and just put down a decimating blow. Uh, namely in um, uh, there was one point in the debate where uh, crystal basically tried to say like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to countenance a, a conversation where we're essentially, where it sounds like we're, we're basically minimizing the Holocaust here. And uh, which, which that was not what was being done by, um, by Scott, even in the prior language, but what, but what Scott turned around on him was that he basically, he just let loose after that point. Cause I, I mean, you could almost feel like, I, I wish I could have, I should go back and look and see if we could see like the reaction that Scott had to that sentence. And I, I'm not sure if they had, a, if they didn't certainly didn't do a close up on Scott for that or, or if they were only on bill at the time. Uh, but I can only imagine that in inwardly Scott just went like, are you, did you just go there? Oh man, here it comes. So then he basically says, you know what? You guys, you neocons, every time that you brought up, you know, a new intervention, you compared whoever it was who was on your hit list to the new, as the new Hitler, you called Saddam that you called uh, Gaddafi that you call, I mean, it just went, he went through the list and then that's because that's what happened every time that uh we've we've had these new interventions put before us it has been in the context of like well you know you're the, you know this guy is this you know this is hitler-esque type activity they even called trump that and yeah. you know come on really and so and he and so what he did is he, he's turning the tables on crystal right there and said that is minimizing the holocaust here mm-hmm. it's minimizing even the atrocities that you are uh, that that america ends up participating in as a result of these interventions and it was just like wham it was beautiful because that was like it was just and at that point crystal was almost like you he just that was the last straw i think like Mm -hmm. he didn't have i like after that it was like oh my gosh (laughs) how do you come back from that he just he was decimated there and uh, and i think he i thought it was it was a glorious uh the best part of the entire uh debate so that was later on. I think that was almost during the uh, almost. I think that may have been even during the Q and A portion of it. Uh, but wow, I mean that it was a significant thing to watch, and it makes me want to go back and even look at some of my own uh, recorded debates and 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 see how much cringe I can take. But, uh, <laughs> we may do that someday. Uh, we'll do that someday. I'll, 
maybe well whatever did anyway. did, did scott horton get the tootsie roll he did Anyone? get the tootsie roll as okay. i understand yes, yes. cool yeah. i figured Can, he would, but. and and just so before we conclude this segment uh may we not forget of course that our dear Carrie here has been to the Soho Forum and participated against the none and only, none and what, none and only, the one and only Walter Block talking about yeah. abortion and eviction of evictionism. Uh, it's an excellent, it's an excellent thing to watch. You should check it out. And uh, yeah, that's a that's something Thanks to kind of to kind of close on. Of course, I'm always plugging yeah. my friends, right? <laughs> All right. Well, so that's that's a, the Soho Forum news. And uh, at some point also as well, we're hopeful that uh, uh, LCI will be sponsoring a Soho debate, uh, hopefully in 2022. Cross your fingers. It was supposed That'd to happen in 2020, but uh, we're, we're beginning the steps toward making that happen in 2022. Cool. Here's to hope it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dad come Delta variants and all that. No, but anyway. Uh, but to kind of conclude, we have one more one more thing we kind of wanted to talk about, and it's something that's been uh, rather well suddenly come upon us. Uh, we had no idea that this was on the horizon in terms of publications. But Carrie, tell us about this weird new book you've discovered. Oh man, well you know it's it's appropriate that you bring up my Soho Forum debate because <laughs> the big deal with the Soho Forum debate was the concept of self ownership and whether. Uh, self-ownership can be applied to the fetus. Um, and if so, what are the implications for that? Um, and so here's this new book that's come out. It's from a uh, reformed uh, writer. I think he's a professor. His name's Alan Noble. Um, and it's called You Are Not Your Own. Um, and it's so referring uh, to Second Corinthians. Uh, f- yeah. First Corinthians, I think oh, it was it first yeah, First Corinthians six nineteen through twenty. You are not your um, own. You have been bought with a price, sort of. Right. Thing. Yeah. And um, he is he is reformed. He he uh, also appeals to the Heidelberg catech- Catechism question one, which um, asks, you know, what is your only comfort in life and death that I belong body and soul to uh, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Or I'm paraphrasing because I I don't know it by heart. But at any well. rate. Um, so what he does though, um, is this, this book isn't just discussing, um, how Christians, um, belong to Christ, which we all know, obviously we do scripture says it outright, but, um, we also know that there are some people who have criticized Christian libertarians for this idea of self-ownership and Alan Noble, uh, really has, has decided to attack it outright. So his thesis, I'm going to read his thesis, um, says this, he says the fundamental lie of majority is that we are not, is that we are our own. He says, until we see this live for what it is until we work to uproot it from our culture and replant a conception of human persons as belonging to God and not ourselves. Most of our efforts in improving the world will be glorified band-aids. Um, he goes on to state his, his stated goal is to recontextualize the argument in the 21st century. Um, and to think specifically in terms of self-ownership and self-belonging from which a number of problems stem. And so, uh, and those number of problems he quotes outright as uh, everything from um, 
endemic porn use, porn use to white nationalism, to the alt-right and meaningless jobs and sex abuse scandals and disconnection with the natural world, like everything is, it can be uh, blamed on this concept of self-ownership. And I know that he's talking specifically about the libertarian view of it because he refers to the, you know, the origin of this concept is coming from uh, 17th century classical liberalism. Strangely enough, he attributes this to Nietzsche, not Locke. So I'm not sure where, <laughs> where he's going with that, but he's, he's really describing He's describing uh, self-ownership and what he believes are the implications of self-ownership as being very uh, nihilistic, very fatalist. Um, and so he's, he's really this, this book, I mean, he, he probably has some, he does have some, some good criticisms about culture generally, but he's totally scapegoating uh the concept of self-ownership and libertarianism and individuality. And it's just really weird. So um, I'm actually going to be writing a review on it um, so that these points can be addressed. I'm a little surprised that it's receiving such praise in the reformed world because it's, it's very poorly written. It's, uh, it's not, I mean, he's got a ton of, uh, scholarly resources, like it's footnoted, but he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't seek out any sort of classical liberal or libertarian resources to get, you know, definitions proper or really address this in an intellectually honest way. So um, in other words, he's arguing, he he's could be it sounds like he's for one thing, straw manning a lot. Yeah. Uh, because he's not actually engaging with the literature, which means that he's mistakenly doing scholarship in the first place, potentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, it also, it also sounds, uh, disturbingly like eisegetical research, yes. uh, in a way that, that, that be, that just doesn't make sense to me, uh, how you can get there because, you know, it, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to make a, a lot of sense. Like, Oh, well, okay. So if you know, the problem, the problem with critiques of self-ownership oftentimes is like, well, what's your alternative, mm -hmm. you know? Okay. So you're, you're saying that God owns, well, then what does that mean for the way in which you and I relate together? Right. You know, and that's the, and that's, that's sort of the issue from uh, even the Christian libertarian standpoint, where we've talked about the idea of stewardship or self-stewardship as being sort of an alternative model, but it doesn't replace self-ownership it just augments it in a, right. in a slightly different way yeah and, and and i don't it just puzzles me that you know that somebody would find that this is that like because it, it's a natural question to ask first of all i would say like it's mm -hmm. a natural question to ask if the bible says that you are not your own you're bought with price well what does that mean about self-ownership okay well I, that's right. a natural question to ask yeah but the 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 answer that sh that can come out of it though is not well I guess that, you know, because God's ownership reigns supreme, that that means that, you know, the only proper manner of social organization has to then be what theocracy, you know, which has never been the answer of the church. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, it, it's perplexing. It's, it's, it is perplexing because, you know, he's also, um, he's also listing out a, a number of complaints that he has with culture. He names, he names a few things. Um, one, he's um, uh, 
very concerned that, uh, people like, you know, stay at home moms get ridiculed for being stay at home moms. <laughs> um, or you have this, Oh, okay. he brings up, he brings up the incel population. The, the involuntary oh celibate population what? is being, yeah, this is, this oh, is a problem and a product and a, a, so and a product. Yeah. It's a product of this, this hyper individuality. Um, and okay. you I'm know, surprised I, I don't, I cannot even understand how individuality and I don't understand it. I don't understand it either. To no, be honest no, no, with no, you. To be fair, I, I mean, just talking in the, and I wouldn't consider myself individualist, although I'm a libertarian. I would, what I would say is right. whoa, whoa, whoa. moms or stay home dads. Well, but that's what actually he's... be the most individualistic because they're saying, I don't care. I have my own priorities. I don't care. Right. Well, but he's like, saying, he's saying that he's saying um, a woman can't a woman can't actually stay at home, be a stay at home mom and live in the culture that we live in because the culture says she should be working or, you know, the, he talks about urban sprawl and how suburban life has separated women from each other. And I'm just like, Oh my god! I mean, his, his, his complaints are rather over the top. Um, to yes. Begin with. Okay. There you go. Like but, a lot of us could, could agree with the complaints, but they're so over the top that they make them trivial. And that's my concern. Yeah. A lot of things could be like, Oh, you know what? That's actually a concern. And he goes over the top, like, dude, really, you didn't have to go there. Like, just, well, and, and on the flip side though. So those are some of his, his conservative, uh, his conservative, uh, complaints, uh, including abuse, abuse and porn use is a huge one. But then he also complains about quote unsustainable consumption and the the usage of plastics and how you know we can't actually deal with the garbage that's created from it and um, <laughs> some some uh, like and I'm just sitting here going if he understood what so self ownership is he could see how it you know is is intended to work to solve these problems. I mean, even the idea of a woman staying home and being a stay at home mom, that comes completely from bodily autonomy and agency. Um, a no woman one, making no one's that business decision. whether you stay home or not. Right. Literally no one's decision, but, but by yourself. He's, but he's, he's trying to say, he, first of all, he attributes, he, he does not properly define self-ownership. Um, oh. And he is confusing it with personhood the metaphysical idea of personhood he is also confusing it with personal identity. Um, and so he, he blames a number of things like he calls it. Um, he says that it's responsible for materialism and, and, uh, consumerism and, um, atomistic individualism and like all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, every libertarian that I know of that understands the concept of self-ownership would say it's not atomistic, right? We're not materialists. We're not, you know, just wanting to consume for the sake of consumption. Like that's none of, that's not what we're talking about. Um, I, but I he, tend to say that, know, that, sociological, that sociologically speaking, and, and, and I, I, I borrow this, this wording from, from the Spanish speaking uh, world that I think in English we should add it a lot more is, Libertarianism is about human beings depending upon social institutions instead of the state. Mm. Funny, that's actually like what one of our core values at LCI. Yeah. <gasps> well, family, friendship, yeah, church, 
uh, voluntary associations. That's what libertarianism is about, is don't depend upon the coercive power of the state. Right. Uh, depend upon your social relationship, which is mainly going to be people that actually love you and right. know who you are and care about you in the most sincere way well, possible. That's, so, so part of his complaint is that self ownership has created this culture that doesn't that that doesn't love each other, right? Oh um, my gosh, that's what he's you know that's what he he's going to uh, he's going to get into, right? The solution is to understand that we are not our own; we belong to God, and therefore we're supposed to serve our fellow man, which isn't that's not untrue, but it doesn't negate self ownership. And yeah. even like, I want to be able to say, look, you want to complain about things like sexual assault and, and sex scandals in the church, but you can't, if a woman doesn't have self-ownership, if she doesn't have a right to her body, if she doesn't own her body, you can't make a complaint about rape and sexual violence against her. Well, you, you end up exist. having to, you end up having to make a purely like subjective argument. Well, you, you, they can make the argument, but mm -hmm. it's just going to be on a on some sort of de facto basis because, well, rape is wrong because God said it was wrong. Yeah. And and I and, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, there's sort of like the the, the uh, there's kind of a way uh, the idea of natural rights, the idea of natural morality is one that we understand to be true. And to even the even the those in the uh, in the scholastics who kind of came up with this even said this is like that they would be true even if God did not exist. Even in, they're not they're not right. trying to go toward the atheist side there, but they're suggesting that like these are evident principles. Mm -hmm. And so, by the way, like self the idea of self ownership may have consummated in Locke, but it was definitely present before then. So sure. if he doesn't realize yeah. that, then give me a second. It wouldn't be that uh, natural revelation. Things that are true through natural re revelation uh, yeah. outside of um, scriptural revelation. I'm trying to remember yes. what it is. So that, yeah, this is, yeah. this was the contention of the scholastics since like the, maybe the, I, it's got to go back at least to the 15th century, if not the 14th. And uh, I, I may have my dates slightly incorrect there, um, but like this 1600, is 1600s uh, Spain. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, surely that that's where you get some of the, the, the lit. But I mean, like it goes back before that. And then when you start even looking into the church fathers, there's definite uh, there's there's this definite sense of uh, of, a, of a growing sense of individual re responsibility and individual value that comes mm -hmm. out of even the early church fathers that you don't find anywhere else. Like, I mean, you can kind of right. get it out of the Stoics, but like yeah. and so even that, you know, there's a, there's a a growing kind of uh, sense of self that's that that's happening in you know throughout all the world on some level uh, with the the rise of certain philosophy and whatnot and and I mean this that's tracking back to ancient history and antiquity and whatnot but like this there's no way you can you can just like say well we just you know self ownership just sort of sprung into being with Locke in this in the 17th century. Or Nietzsche in the 17th century, apparently. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how that worked its way out, but but I, but that's just that's just it, it's such a confusion of, of category. The, like the you, natural system of liberty comes at least from natural system of, of liberty that um, even Adam Smith talk, talked about. We can go back to at least in the Protestant 
uh, line, we can easily go back to uh, Grotius. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Sure. Yeah. And to Pufendor, at mm. least. And, can, that, and that's and that's just in you know Reformation period, of course. Exactly. I understand. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I get that, but it goes it goes back even farther. Back I mean, further. when you think about it, there's this grow. You'll see the growing sense of these things in in, in writings of antiquity for sure. I mean, what. You know, for, you can. I mean, just as for example, uh, and I'm going on tangents here, but like even in the in Stoic literature, there are there is a you know a, a sense of the power of oneself to control oneself because that's all you ultimately have power over, right? And that's you know that is a there is a growing sense even in those writings from Epicurus, uh, Ep, well Epictetus and Epicurus for that matter, uh, through Marcus Aurelius who was. I mean, he's a freaking emperor of Rome right. uh, to Seneca. I mean, if, forgive me. I've been reading a lot of stoicism <laughs> in the last couple of years. So it's like, it's, I actually kind of know this stuff now, but you know, th- these are, these are, I, th- it's not something that you uniquely, you know, resonant to the 17th century and beyond that, you know, just well, sort of and, appeared. Yeah. So it's, uh, what's weird is that, you know, first of all, it appears that this author, um, Alan Noble really does have an, an ax to grind, but the weird thing is, is that, you know, part of the message of his book is that he wants, he wants us to understand our relationship to the community again, and, you know, caring about other, other people. And I'm, I'm just sort of floored because one of the principles, one of the basic principles that I learned in my philosophy classes was that when you are um, criticizing or being or critiquing rather a, a point of view that you don't hold, the the rule of thumb is to paint them in the best light possible, to do <laughs> your utmost to paint them in the best light possible, if for nothing else than to improve your own argument to make sure you're produ- producing the best argument. And he mm-hmm. doesn't do that. He doesn't even make an attempt. Like I, there are, there are literally no resources, um, that he cites that are, you know, classical liberal or even modern libertarian saying, this is what self-ownership means. This is yeah, what they, they, they intended. Have, they have to no imply. direct interaction with those that he's critiquing. And that's very no, concerning. Absolutely. Zero. Absolutely zero interaction. And, and, and I think for Christians in general, should actually be critical of all literature, including Christian literature, that does not interact with those that are being criticized. It's very right. unfair yeah. to have an entire book, an entire I don't know, post, whatever you want to call it, without an honest and open and critical. That's right. With well, those that are actually being criticized. Yeah. Well, if he if he cared about his own message. He should be doing that. If he, yeah. if he, you know, no, and I'm actually more concerned about the the audience because the audience is accepting the audience. It. Yeah, I'm concerned about and the audience as well. Yeah, and I'm concerned about the audience as well because, especially because this is you know targeted at reformed people. And I, I mean, for me personally, I've been trying to reach out to the reformed world about libertarianism, and I've had some some success. But, you know, this is this is uh, published by InterVarsity Press. So he gets way more uh, yeah. way more airtime than I do. Uh, um, 
but, and people are just, I'm surprised at how many people have written positive reviews of it. And I'm just like, he's not engaged. He's not actually engaging with the topic. He's inventing this concept out of thin air and then knocking it down. Um, so at any rate, that's, that's the book that I came across and I will be writing a, a, uh, a review of it and critiquing it. And so, well, and, and I'm, I, I have a couple of of other sort of concluding comments slash questions for you for one thing, who's, who all is praising this book at this point? Can you, can you point to a few names that people might know? Cause I'm just curious as to like, yeah, who so- else should I be avoiding? No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> it, it sounds like a lot of people I know would actually like this ideas because they're, well, they're, obviously, yeah. they're obviously very concerned because this is the issue. And, and as they were trans, uh, we have to kind of figure that out that the idea politics and culture are sadly very connected in people's mindset category. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even some libertarians uh, inside, uh, I would say, except for Christian not for Christian libertarians. So if you think about political conservatism, then that means cultural conservatism, which I've seen it to not be the case. Right. The other way, liberal uh, liberal politics will mean liberal uh, culture. Right. And I've seen it not be the case. And for libertarianism, they're always assuming, okay, if you're a libertarian politically, therefore you must be some type of libertine that doesn't care about anything right? Uh, because otherwise you will it's be like inconsistent we, with whatever because you get, everything has to be connected. And no, that's not the case. It's, it's almost like we wrote a book chapter on that. I know. Hmm. We did. <laughs> um, anyways, to answer your question, Norm, I think the, the one off the top of my head, actually the one that sort of sent alarm bells into my head was that um, Mike Horton at the White, White Horse. Really? Inn. Yeah. And I think, oh. I, I mean, if I, I, can if, see why. if I, I, if I have just totally honest, I think probably he wrote it just as a nice thing and he doesn't engage with libertarianism either. So I wouldn't expect him to, to really know, but, um, at any rate, there was, um, another author that I follow Amy bird. She's currently reading it. She said she was excited about it. Um, and so about them. we should actually reach out to them. If you ask yeah. yeah. Especially you, you have, you have a connection to her, don't you? Amy I do. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, I, I think we've, we've agreed that, uh, we take different approaches to our, our common problem, but, um, <laughs> at any rate, mm. uh, well, yeah. okay. So one thing that comes to mind to me about this is I'm reminded what, uh, Dick, Dick Clark, who is one of our other co-authors on faith seeking freedom. And by the way, that chapter reference, we did write a chapter about misconceptions about libertarianism, from the Christian's point of view. And we address this idea, are libertarians just libertines? And of course the answer that is no. You know, you, and you know why it bothers me the most? Because I see a bunch of conservatives, they openly tell you, I'm conservative when it comes to like fiscal whatevers, mm-hmm. but in social issues, I'm totally like on the other side. Yeah. And nobody says anything. Oh, but when we say something, then we are the worst or yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. yeah, so like, congratulations guys. So here's here's the thing. Dick noted that this sounds, and I'm, I'm almost quoting him here. It's like, this sounds like it's going to be a huge exercise in equivocation. And he was right. Yes. You know, so the, the fact is, is that like, this has happened, this happens all the time with respect to concepts in libertarian ideas, because it is in the interest of the state to, to uh, essentially disparage 
ideas about liberty through ambiguity. Okay. So the more that they can confuse people about what it means to be free, you know, yeah. oh, you, you guys are all free right now. I mean, you're free, but we're yeah. also going to take 40% of your income, you know, because that's how we maintain that freedom for you, buddy, and right. things like that. So they, these are acts of confusion that they sow with us all the time. And so, and, and by that, I mean, like, this is an act of equivocation. Is essentially that mm-hmm. it that it they're trying to confuse through ambiguity that which it, what meaning really is in a certain time, you know a situation. So I see that as being this this is and and we also even as libertarians need to not but we are not immune to doing this ourselves at times. That yeah. is why it is crucial to understand how to make a good argument and present it well and 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 in a respectful and, but also poignant way. I mean, all these things about rhetoric matter here for yeah. us. And we, and so I think in as much as this is, uh, this is ridiculous, uh, tri- you know, drivel from Mr. Noble uh, and very ignoble of him to write it in the first place. Uh, we should also use it as an object lesson for ourselves to like, you know what, let's get better at our own arguments as well while we're at it because we need yeah. to. Yeah, because uh, the better we get at this, then the less that then the less confusion that they can bring against us. So, yeah, that's my final word of uh, you know words of wisdom from Norman for the day. And, <laughs> Another uh, S- SNL skit. <laughs> yeah, no, <I'm> <laughs> <laughs> It'd be funnier than than last week's, I'm sure. Whatever. Uh, it was. I heard they had uh, someone, some Kim Kardashian hosted, which is just. Whatever. Oh, anyway, I haven't, I haven't watched us. I can't believe years. I'm going to end in the an episode of this by saying the word Kim Kardashian. <laughs> Kim Kardashian. But it just happened. So just happened. you know, <laughs> just congratulations. Happened. So until then, until next time. No, 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 no. Let, let's close it this way. Socialism doesn't work because it has a knowledge problem. There and you a go. Calculation problem. Yeah. There you go. And don't do eisegesis, please, for the please love stop. of God, don't. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. Yeah, just stop. That's a, that's a good way to end. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>